if you have your Bible, then I will invite you to turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. We'll go all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. Although I will show the verses sometime later on in the service, but I do encourage you that if you have your physical Bible or digital Bible in front of you, that we encourage you to follow along as I read and expound this passage. So Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with its net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, let me begin by sharing with you a story about Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in Ecuador in South America in the early 1900s. Jim Elliott felt called by God to be a missionary as a young man, and he he desired to go out to the nations to tell the gospel to unreached tribes. And it also made him sad knowing that many people died without knowing Jesus Christ. And then he eventually married Elizabeth Elliot, but more on that later. Jim Elliot first spent a year in this place uh, in Quito, uh, learning to speak Spanish. And when he arrived in Shandia, he also had to learn the speech of the Quechua. And three years later, he, many Quechua had become faithful Christians. Jim now began to feel that it was time to share the gospel with this tribe called the Alka. It seemed like everything was going according to God's plan. Everything was good and ministry was very, very fruitful. But one day, Jim Elliott and four men went to Alka tribe and afterward and then let their wives remaining in the, the Quecha village. And they learned that the Alka tribe was very violent. They were a very dangerous group of people. But Jim Elliott knew that it was the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change their hearts so that they can stop the killing, even though it was a dangerous mission. And when they encountered the Alka, those people were not very friendly towards the missionaries. And subsequently, 
they speared these five men, these missionaries, and they died. And the ministry and the wives back at the base were shocked to hear what happened. Was this really God's plan? Was this really God's way? How could God have allowed this to happen? If the death of Jim Elliot and others were part of God's ways, then how should we make sense of it? What happens when God's ways make no sense to us? Like when tragedy hits close to home, when you or your loved one are suffering with an illness or disease, when you thought going to, into this job or this university or into this ministry was part of God's plan for you, but you face relational strain with your family members, or when there's a ministry plan that you thought was God's will, but then it got canceled. Hence, I titled this morning's message, When God's Ways Make No Sense. And we'll see that in this passage as Habakkuk continues with his dialogue with the Lord. Two weeks ago, I began our study in the book of Habakkuk. And this book addresses the issue of the problem of evil. Habakkuk had faced and have encountered the evil and the corruption in the land of Judah. And he was questioning why, why God wasn't doing anything to, to stop this evil and suffering. And maybe for us, the same question, why isn't God stopping the evil and suffering in this world? I think every one of us will experience to some degree suffering, or even to suffer under the hands of evil people in our life, no matter how hard we try to avoid it. And it is in those moments where our faith in the Lord will be tried and challenged. Habakkuk raised his questions to God regarding the evil in the land of Judah, and God did answer his questions in the previous passage, in his own words, by saying that he's already doing something about the treachery of Judah. He's not idly looking at the evil there and not doing anything about it. He is doing something about it. And God told Habakkuk in verses 5 to 11 that what he's about to do is going to be shocking and unbelievable. God will judge the evil of Judah by sending the Chaldeans as his instrument of judgment. Now, the Chaldeans is just another name for the Babylonians. I won't get into the history behind it, but I may use the Chaldeans and Babylonians interchangeably, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll just call them the Babylonians. Uh, we have learned that it was the Lord's doing in ordaining the, the Babylonians to do his work. He's the one who raised them. He's the one who raised them up according to chapter 1, verse 6. And just to remind you that the Babylonians, they were a ruthless and a barbaric nation. They were more corrupt and more evil than Judah. And so God responded to Habakkuk's question in the previous passage. That was his unexpected answer. Therefore, how will Habakkuk respond? So please, with that in mind, please follow along as I expound Habakkuk, the rest of the chapter, the passage from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 and onward. You see, in verse 12, we see that Habakkuk seems to have accepted God's answer. You see, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. 
O Lord, you have ordained him as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established him for reproof. You see, Habakkuk just seems to have accepted God's answer. He doesn't seem to be, to be stopping God from doing what he has already planned to accomplish. And so, in fact, in this verse, Habakkuk knows something about God that is his characteristics and, or his attributes. First, Habakkuk knows that God is the everlasting God. See, God alone has always existed before eternity passed. He was never created, and he will never die. And before the world was created, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is outside of time. He is not bound by time. He is not affected by time. He sees all things, and he knows all things. He saw nations and kingdoms rise, and he saw them fall throughout the history of the world. Not only does he see history, but that he is the Lord over history. He is in control of history. Second, Habakkuk notes that God is the Holy One. He is holy. And when the Bible talks about the holiness of God, it speaks of his otherness. His otherness. He is set apart from all other things in this world. There is no one like God. There is no stain of sin. There is no stain of evil in God's character. Everything that God does displays his moral perfections, his excellence, and his purity. Third, Habakkuk knows that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. Notice that it is God who ordained them as a judgment. Now, I like the NIV's rendering of this part of the verse where it says, You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. It means that God raised, God ordained, God, uh, God appointed the Babylonians to judge and to rebuke his people for their sins and for their wicked ways. Now, even though the Babylonians were, were the most powerful and wicked nation in the Middle Eastern world at that time, they are not outside of God's sovereignty in working on his purposes for his glory and for our good. Fourth, Habakkuk knows that God is immovable. He's unshakable. Habakkuk uses a metaphor to describe God as rock. He's the rock. And rock is unbreakable. He always acts consistently with his character. God never changes. Evil and suffering will not break God. It will never change who God is. Now, in the middle of verse 12, Habakkuk says, we shall not die. Now, some of your translations may say, you shall not die. Now, but I think the ESV has the correct Hebrew translation. You see, if it says, you shall not die, it was talking to God. Of course, he, of course God cannot die because he's everlasting. But I think ESV has the correct Hebrew translation. We shall not die. So what is Habakkuk saying here? See, Habakkuk may have felt that the invasion of Babylon was going to wipe away the, the nation of Judah altogether, but he is confident that we shall not die. He knows God's character, and knowing God's character, Habakkuk puts his trust in the holy and eternal God who made a covenant with Abraham, with David, and with others to preserve his people, and then eventually, as we know it, to bring forth the Messiah to save us from our sins. Indeed, some in, or most in Judah will be destroyed, but a remnant will remain. 
Habakkuk knows in chapter 3, verse 2, that God will bring wrath upon Judah while also being merciful. Judah will not be utterly and completely destroyed. Some were exiled to Babylon for 70 years and then went back to Israel, while some, there are few, who remained in Judah and they were not exiled. So this is, the, this is appropriate for us to learn. See, when God's ways don't make sense to us or make no sense to us at all, we need to remember the attributes of God or to study the attributes of God. Habakkuk knows who his God is. You know, most people who throw their fists at God don't really know him and would dare to complain to him and mock him when they should be fearing him to fear the Lord. Brothers, so brothers and sisters, what do you know about God when you face crises like the pandemic? Do you believe that he is sovereign over this? Do you believe that he is good? Do you believe that he is infinitely wise in this situation? Do you believe that God works out all things for good to those who love him? It's important to know the attributes of God. It's important to know who he is during these times because we can have confidence that he is good, that he has a plan for us. If you ever want to study more about the attributes of God, I do recommend a book called God Is, written by Mark Jones. It's a very simple book to read, but he lists out all the attributes of God, and he explains it in a a simple way. So back to the passage. Although Habakkuk seems to have accepted God's answer, it does not mean that he fully understands it. Okay? It does not mean he fully understands it. See, Habakkuk is left with a dilemma because God's response from the previous passage seems to conflict with Habakkuk's understanding of who God is. How could God, a holy and righteous God, use a more violent and wicked nation to judge his own people who are also evil? And Habakkuk may be saying to God, Lord, I I know your plan, but your cure just seems to be a lot worse than the disease. That is the question that Habakkuk raised before God in verse 13. He says, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. See, God is the Holy One. He is holy. He is pure. And since that is who He is, God is too pure to even look at evil in the eyes and not do anything about it. Psalm chapter 5 verses 4 to 5 says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's what the text says. And so maybe, maybe Habakkuk is saying, since that is who you are, God, why do you idly look at traitors? Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It seems that God was tolerating the sins and, ev- and evil of the most wicked nation. Why would God just allow the Babylonian a- nation to exist? And, w- and God is gonna, just going to use them? If God is too pure to behold evil, then how can he use the wicked to swallow and devour a person more righteous than they? Or just put another way, why would God allow the Babylonians to overrun other nations such as Judah? In verses 14 to 17, Habakkuk is now going to tell God 
what this nation specifically does to other nations. Think about it. Don't we all do that? Don't we all just tell God what's, what, 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 what he doesn't seem to know? We all do that. God knows. God knows what this nation does. But Habakkuk is just going to tell him. So we are given an imagery of a fisherman and his net. And we see in verse 14 where Habakkuk acknowledges that God is the creator of mankind. He's, Habakkuk says this, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. But he's also wondering, why did God make nation so vulnerable before a wicked nation like Babylon? See, Habakkuk is giving a very forceful picture of the way other nations were helpless before the Babylonian armies. See, fishes were, are often vulnerable of being captured by the net. They have no ruler to lead and to guide them to safety. Uh, they can try to avoid and swim, swim away from the net, but once captured, they can't even defend themselves against the net and escape from it. Now, this verse is not meant to be a general rule for every nation because there are rulers in nations. There have been good rulers who have defended and protected, protected the nation from wicked nations. I just think about Sir Winston Churchill, who was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who made a huge contribution in ensuring the safety of his nation during World War II against Nazi Germany. See, when there is a good ruler that defends the nation against tyranny and evil, it's all part of God's sweet providence. It's all part of God's grace. But nations that have no rulers or judges that keep wickedness in check will become defenseless and will become pawns for evil. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. In verses 15 to 17, Habakkuk expands upon the imagery of the net. And the he here in this passage is, a, is the personification of Babylon. Now some, some would say this is, a this is talking about the king of Babylon, but either way, speaking of Babylonians in general, Habakkuk says, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? See, the hook was used by the Babylonians to take captives away by hooking, them, hooking their captives in their noses. It was just an intentionally painful and humiliating treatment. And then there's a net. The image is that of a fish helplessly caught in a fishing net. A commentator said that the said once said this, and I quote, Mesopotamian rock reliefs portray prisoners in nets being hauled off to captivity, end quote. So what this imagery is trying to tell us is that the Babylonians treat people as lowliest creatures on earth, not as people who are made in the image of God. And then these people, they rejoice and they're glad. They celebrate because of their victory and because of their conquest. 
and therefore they sacrificed they sacrificed whatever they had to their gods which were their nets and their dragnets you see the, the net and the dragnet uh, were symbolic of their military power and back in chapter 1 verse 11 they worshipped their military power as their own god instead of our lord Babylon lived off of conquering other nations by plundering and possessing other things from other nations that were not even theirs and thus they, the army could supply their own people with the finest things and then so in verse 17 knowing that this was what the Babylonians did to other nations Habakkuk essentially asked these questions is God going to keep on watching this wicked nation mercilessly kill nations kill off nations without doing anything about it forever will God ever put a stop to the Babylonians greed for conquest those are some of the perplexing thoughts that Habakkuk had and like Habakkuk many perhaps many of us have struggled to understand just how a holy God could use evil to judge evil this is a puzzling and a very complex dilemma and tension in theology now I think many maybe some of us are okay with God just directly wiping away the wickedness of Judah himself if you remember 2nd Samuel chapter 24 David numbered the census of his army which was considered sinful and prideful because he trusted in his army rather than trusting in God and then so the prophet Gad confronted David and then gave him three possible punishments and David chose his answer I am in great distress let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of man you see wouldn't it be better wouldn't it be better for Judah to just fall directly into the hand of God why does Judah have to fall into the hand of man like the Chaldeans like the Babylonians see for God to just use evil to punish evil just seems so unthinkable in our heads would not God's use of the Chaldeans the Babylonians result in even greater damage to his righteous character so what will Habakkuk now do will he now conclude that God is no longer trustworthy and that he's just evil and that just because he uses evil as a means to accomplish his purposes wherever that may be someone once commented that Habakkuk can allow his doubts to be either destructive or creative he can use his doubts struggles and agonizing questions to turn from God and to renounce his faith or he can keep his hold on God trusting him for an answer see that's the kind of like God asking us how would you respond would you walk away knowing this is what the text says or would you continue to hold on to God and trust him for an answer in beginning of chapter 2 verse 1 Habakkuk will wait for God that's what he does that's what the text says he will wait for God to respond to him by standing at the watch post and station himself on the tower 
There's a purpose for why he's doing that. You see, the prophets were known as the watchmen. Ezekiel 3 tells us about it. See, Habakkuk withdrew from normal society and uh, concentrated specifically on God and what God would say when God decided to speak. He does not have the answer to his perplexing questions, so he would not speak until he receives divine revelation from God. He is dependent on hearing God for answers, not his own wisdom, not his own interpretation. And once he hears directly from God and his revelation, he could declare this message to other folks. And so in verses 2 to 4, we see God, God's second response to Habakkuk's second complaint. See, in verse 2, God responded by commanding Habakkuk to write this down, to write the vision on tablets so that he may run who reads it. So what this means is that Habakkuk is to make the message plain enough and clear enough so that the person running may read the message so that it can be read at a glance. Now think of a billboard that advertises a product. I know living in the city of Vancouver is hard to see a lot of billboards, but if you, go to, if you drive to Abbotsford, you see more of that. Uh, but think of a billboard that advertises a product. You can drive very fast, but still be able to see the advertisement. So similarly, Habakkuk may have to write this vision large enough for runners to easily take a glance and to see it and to, de- to declare this to everyone. And this vision that God is about to show to Habakkuk is for everyone, for all ages. This is also for us as well, that we get to see what God is going to show to Habakkuk. And this vision that Habakkuk will see deals with how God plans to punish evil in the end and to vindicate the righteous. So brothers and sisters, when God's ways make no sense to us, we need to patiently learn God's word. Habakkuk waited patiently for God to speak to him, and Habakkuk wrote God's revelation in this book. God has already spoken to us only through this book. We don't need to wait and hear from God. He has already done it. He has already spoken. We have the divine revelation that is certain that we can have confidence in. You don't need to worry if God hasn't answered some of your perplexing questions, because he has. He sure has. And this is the book that addresses all issues and all problems in life. Everything that you see, all the problems you see in life, this book has answers for them. But it takes patience, doesn't it? It does does take patience and time and commitment to read through this book and to examine it, to study it. However, this vision will happen sometime in the future, according to verse 3. How God plans to punish evil requires us to be patient. It requires us to wait. Just like all the other prophecies in the Old Testament, some of them were foretelling, where it prophesies a particular event that will happen in the future, like judgment upon other nations. That will happen at least 100 years later. Even consider the prophecies about our Lord Jesus Christ. 500 years before he was born, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and they were all fulfilled. But why? Why does God want us to wait? 
Why does God have to allow evil to continue to exist and not do anything about it? Why does he want us to wait? How many of you enjoy a good ending of a movie? Oh, I can't see your hands up, but for those of you who are here, you can raise your hands up. Okay, I see one. I see a couple. Now, it's been a while since I watched The Lord of the Rings, and I must confess that I haven't read the books yet, and maybe some of you diehard fans will just now tell me, convince me to read the books because they're better than the three movies. But I digressed. But I have found the three movies to be a little bit quite dark, but a great storyline filled with conflicts, character development, filled with, you know, battles between evil and the righteous, the good and evil. And for me, it just felt like, as I was watching through the whole series one time, it just felt like the only time there was light and brightness was in the beginning and at the end of the whole series. Everything in the middle was pretty dark, battle and fighting and running away and a lot of dialogues. You know the story. Frodo had to take the ring and throw it into the lava of, of Mount Doom in Mordor. And after Frodo finally tossed the ring into the lava at the third movie, the movie begins to have a triumphant ending as Frodo can finally rest from all his troubles. Evil has been defeated. Things are resolved in the end. And in the movie... In the movie, Frodo had a friend called Sam. And Sam once made this statement to Frodo that I thought was excellent. Listen to this, and I quote, It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something, that there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for, end quote. Just makes me want to watch the movie again. But the point I'm trying to make here is this, is that, God will allow evil to exist only for a moment so that the defeat of evil in the end will be all the more sweet, will be all the more triumphant. It will reveal more of God's glory and how he deals with evil in the end. But he will also show us how he will work out all things for those who trusted in him. We know the story, right, brothers and sisters? We know how history will end in the book of Revelation. Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead. Judgment is coming for those who have rebelled against Christ. Heaven, the new heaven and new Jerusalem, awaits for those who have trusted in him for salvation and have longed for his coming. 
we need to have the end in mind as believers because that will encourage us to persevere in our walk with Christ. And if we live our life in light of eternity at this moment, even in the midst of suffering, it changes, it should change the way we live in the present so that when or if we ever look back at the turmoil that we have faced, they would pale in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And so going back to the passage, God does promise to Habakkuk. He does promise to Habakkuk that this vision, this revelation will come into fruition. He will defeat evil. But he never promised that it will meet Habakkuk's schedule. No one can pull God's legs. No one can force God to fulfill his promises according to our timing or to our own will. And although God's timing may seem slow to us, it is fast in its perspective. We must remember that the slowness, that God's timing may seem slow to us. We must remember that slowness does not mean that his purpose is thwarted or that God has to, you know, fumble around and find other avenues or, or ways or means to fulfill his purposes. No, it has always been plan A. He will fulfill his vision. He will fulfill his promises precisely at his own time and in his own ways. When the Apostle Peter wrote his second letter, there were scoffers who mocked at the second coming of Jesus. And they questioned, where is the coming of his, uh, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some counts know this, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so in verse 4, God will bring con his condemnation against the nation of Babylon in the future. And he plans to include, in, his, in this whole plan, the end in mind, he plans to include two types of people, the proud and the righteous. See, the text says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him but the righteous shall live by his faith. Although the prideful person is referred directly to the Babylonians, I think it can also be applied to anybody. Scoffers, prideful people, people who rely on themselves, their own might and their own wisdom, it applies to people who have rejected God's word, who mock God's word and have not trusted in him, and what he has said in his word. However, here's a profound answer that God gives to those who are dependent upon him in the midst of turbulent times. He says, the righteous shall live by his faith. Now at this point, maybe perhaps some of you are just frustrated and upset with that answer. See, maybe some of you have experienced this, like Christians can, can just sometimes just come up to you uh, if you have suffered and just say, tell you, well, just have faith in God. Just have faith. Just trust God because he has a plan for you, right? Maybe you have heard that, and I get it. 
I know that's not the best answer. And for us as Christians, we should be more sensitive to those who are grieving, to those who are suffering. We should mourn with those who mourn, and that we shouldn't just we shouldn't uh, mis misapply God's word in the wrong context. But I do think God's response to Habakkuk's perplexing questions is sort of similar to the one that He gave to Job, right? Back in Job chapter 18, 38 and onwards, God is telling Habakkuk that His ways are always consistent. His ways are always consistent with His character, even though He uses evil, but they, but. But, but the fact that he uses evil does not mean, does not distort his character. They're somehow consistent. But, but we're challenged here in this passage that the main issue that God wants us to, wants to speak into our life and into Habakkuk's life is that all of us have human short-sightedness. We are limited in our perspective of what God is ultimately doing in the grand scheme of things. So it's, it's kind of the same response, to, same response to Job. Therefore, as difficult as this may sound for Habakkuk and even to us, when God's ways make no sense, we do need to live by faith. We do need to trust Him and not doubt His ways. Not just trust Him in one moment, but to live by faith to live every day trusting in God and who He is. We need to live by faith. And this phrase, living the righteous shall live by faith, is a sweet jewel of a verse that it changed Martin Luther's life. And that's how the Reformation came to be. And even the New Testament writers have picked up on this idea of faith that those who trust in Jesus Christ by faith will be justified. And so for us, we need to trust Christ for salvation. We need to trust Christ and not depend on ourselves to save ourselves, but trust in His promises that those who trust in Him will be saved. And so back to Habakkuk, just, I think we need to humbly admit and confess to God that we don't always completely understand everything. We need to pray to God, Lord, I don't completely understand your ways. I don't completely know your plan for me. I know the end in mind. I know where I'm going in the end, but I don't know how the journey goes, what the journey looks like. But I know who you are. I know you are wise. I know you are sovereign. I know you are good. And I am willing to concede that, God, you are able to resolve the things, the tensions and the dilemmas that I can't do in my mind. Therefore, I'm going to live by faith and trust in your promises, trust in who you are and what you've said in your word. Let me wrap up with a story of what happened after Jim Elliot was martyred. Many at that time may have thought that the ministry of Jim Elliot in Alka was terminated, ended, because it was so dangerous. However, it actually didn't. Elizabeth Elliot and other widows stayed in Ecuador and continued to serve there. 
a couple of years later, there seems to have been some connection between the tribe of Alka and the tribe of Quecha. Uh, uh, the Alka then invited Elizabeth Elliot and the widows to live with them. To live with them. To live with the people who murdered their husbands. And of course, Elizabeth Elliot wanted to be faithful to the Lord. And so she and others went there. And what happened? They were able to share the gospel with them. They were able to introduce to them the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And surprisingly, many of the Alka became Christians. And it changed the nation forever to this day. These Alka, they have found hope of eternity only by faith in Jesus. If you're not a believer this morning, that is also a message for you. You can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins and trusting Him for salvation. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we find answers to all the problems of evil in the world. See, when Jesus Christ died, He suffered. He, he suffered under the hands of lawless and evil men. But God used that to bring about the saving of many lives. And God used that to, to win the battle against evil so that our sins can be forgiven. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he, did, he conquered evil. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. And so that those who trust in him can have hope in the future of the resurrection. We can have hope in the future of the resurrection. I want to end off with what Elizabeth Elliot wrote. You see, El Elizabeth Elliot afterwards, she wrote many books and quotes, but here's what she said as a way to conclude her message. The will of God is never exactly what you expect it to be. It may seem to be much worse, but in the end, it's going to be a lot better and a lot bigger. Let me say that again. The will of God is never exactly what you expect it to be. It may seem to be much worse, but in the end, it's going to be a lot better and, much, and a lot bigger. Let's pray. Father, we don't always comprehend what you're doing in our lives and in this world. Lord, I know that maybe there are some of us who are struggling, facing trouble, don't completely understand why, trying to hold on to their dear life, trying to hold on to you, O oh Lord, and trust that, God, you are in control. And, Father, uh, I do pray that you comfort them. I pray that for those who are doubting, who are struggling with beliefs, Oh, Lord, please help their unbelief. Please help them with their doubts. Help them not to renounce you, but to hold on to you for answers. Lord, as, as we know as Christians, we have confidence of where we will be in the end. But we don't always know what, what the path looks like. So, Lord, help us to walk by faith, to live by faith, to trust in the Lord and lean not to our own understandings. And in all your our ways, may we acknowledge you and you will make straight our paths. Oh Lord, please help us trust you and know that God, you are good, you are sovereign, you are holy, and that you are wise. 
that you will work all things, work out all things for good to those who love you. That's, that is our hope. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.